Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Alexander Lenoska. Alexander is an assistant professor of international relations at the Department of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. Alexander focuses in his work on alliance politics, nuclear strategy, and theories of war. Alexander's most recent and very timely book, Military Alliances in the 21st Century, interrogates key assumptions about how alliances function and shows that many factors that we might consider to be flaws of military alliances are, in fact, built-in factors that are part of the character of military alliances and structure the ways in which they function. It's interesting, I believe I'm not mistaken, that this book came out just after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. However, the book has become increasingly relevant throughout this year as we've seen a real spotlight put on a key international military alliance, the NATO alliance, and a lot of attention paid to how NATO is functioning and responding to this hot military conflict right on its border. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Alexander. Thank you so much for having me and thank you very much for those remarks. As I mentioned at the outset, in your book, Military Alliances in the 21st Century, you explain why some of the conventional thinking around the reasons that military alliances form might not provide us with a complete picture of what is really happening when states choose to join a military alliance. So to start out, could you talk about what motivated the writing of this book and also how you conceptualize the key purposes behind military alliances, which you talk about in a little bit of a different way to how we might typically think about it? So one reason why I wrote this book is that over the course of the last decade or so, we have seen so much commentary that emphasizes how military alliances, especially the sort that the United States is running, have been experiencing high levels of stress, that no one believes that others, least of all the United States, would really provide military support to them in the face of military aggression, that few spend adequately on their militaries, that the threat environment has become so complex as to make these arrangements more or less useless. And in some, we have entered into this new age where our alliances, especially those that were conceived and brought into being in the early part of the Cold War, are fundamentally broken. At least this is a common perception. Now, I've been researching alliances for the better part of my scholarly career. I spent quite a bit of time paying attention to how NATO and US alliances in East Asia were operating during the Cold War, particularly for my first book, Atomic Assurance. And I could not help but notice that a lot of these arguments that I just mentioned are those that we have seen quite a lot over the course of the Cold War. And that got me thinking that perhaps military alliances have always been like this, and that really dysfunction and dissatisfaction are perhaps more of a feature of military alliances than we like to believe or care to admit. And so what I do in my book is to build upon this observation. So to answer your question, the reason why states might conclude a written treaty to have a military alliance is really to solve a two-sided problem. That on the one hand, they want to clarify their commitments to themselves, to each other, to the adversary, signaling their seriousness to address a particular threat, and thus 
to enhance deterrence. On the other hand, the reason why you have treaties in the first place is because you have sufficiently different interests that cause doubt as to whether everyone will do their job in a manner satisfactory to everyone else. So having a treaty affords the opportunity to address those doubts, whether through having conditions attached or varying levels of precise language, which in turn can create ambiguity. I believe that this fundamental tension really lies at the heart of military alliances and neglecting it has opened up a few misunderstandings as to how these alliances operate, not least this notion that they're, especially in the present day, so dysfunctional. And it is a paradox, but I think vagueness is often coupled with precision, and that drives so much of some of the discord that we are seeing in these sorts of relationships. Yeah, that's a really interesting tension that you indicate between being precise about what a military alliance is attempting to do, but on the other hand, being purposefully vague in order to incorporate all of the different interests of the different members. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, NATO has been criticised for being at times vague about how they might respond to things such as Russia using some type of nuclear weapon, for example. When you're observing that, do you actually see that as part of the inbuilt functioning of the NATO alliance rather than a dysfunction? I think it is both. The Washington Treaty, the treaty that underpins NATO, is purposely vague uh, as to what a military response would be in the event of an armed attack on any one member, whether it involves the use of nuclear weapons or not. Article 5 might spell out that an attack against one is an attack against all, but it does not guarantee any sort of response. Counterintuitively, I think this is actually a good thing. If it were clear as to what the alliance would do in any sort of contingency, again, whether it involves nuclear weapons or not, then adversaries would obviously try to tailor their aggression in order to get around the parameters of the alliance commitment. In some ways, this is an explanation for why Russia has opted to use far more forceful measures against Georgia and Ukraine than it has against NATO, with individual NATO members in contrast to what it's doing, especially right now against Ukraine, Russia prefers to engage in more subtle forms of aggression, forms of aggression that involve malicious cyber activities, disinformation campaigns, sabotage, and the like. What Russia's war against Ukraine also exposes is just how bright of a line that national borders really are. Sociologically, there's no real difference between Ukrainians and Poles living in the border area. They might speak different languages, certainly they fall under different jurisdictions, but they're all humans worthy of the dignity and the respect that they must have under international law. Politically, however, NATO does make a very crucial distinction, and this is why Ukraine has been so anxious to be a member of the alliance. There is a strong distinction between what counts as a member and what is not. Sometimes that distinction does get blurred as what might be the case with Sweden and Finland. But with Ukraine, there's not so much of that blurriness. But whether these distinctions are tight or blurry, those are really, I think, the result of political choices. Mm -hmm. So another thing that we often consider when we look at alliances is what happens if that military alliance is actually triggered. And we talk about these problems of either entrapment where some alliance members might get dragged into a conflict that they don't really want to be in, or the problem of abandonment where members of the alliance who actually want other members to come to their aid 
when there is a military threat, feel uncertain about whether that will actually take place. So if we think about, for example, with NATO, there's been a lot of talk about will Article 5 be triggered, which is really the article that allows for NATO members to engage in direct military conflict with an adversary in order to protect NATO members. So could you talk a bit about how you consider these issues of entrapment and abandonment and suggest that maybe they're not as big of a problem as we might sometimes assume? Right. And certainly these are very active debates as to how the alliance has been operating over the course of this year. Now, the classic scenario that a number of observers have raised is one where Russia would try to interdict convoys of military supplies destined for Ukraine, but still remain in NATO borders, for instance, in Poland. Another scenario, perhaps one inspired by recent events in Przewodów, is for a Russian missile to hit NATO territory, whether intentionally or not. And indeed, the dilemma invoked is that a NATO member might be too eager or might be too retaliatory, such that it goes and takes matters into its own hands, fighting Russia directly as a result, perhaps after some sort of provocation. And as such, the rest of the alliance feels compelled to bail out that ally if not support it. And I think this concern in theory, is reasonable. In practice, however, I don't think things are ever so simple, in part because of the vagueness of the treaty and the fact that states rarely ever want to go alone in a war, given the risks involved. There are all sorts of incentives to be cautious. And indeed, with respect to the more recent event in Przewodów, that Polish uh, settlement not far from the Ukraine border where two Polish citizens were killed, we do observe Poland being rather cautious. Its government avoided any unambiguous language that would clearly single out Russia as having intentionally fired a missile on Polish territory, that the language adopted by the Polish Foreign Affairs Ministry was sufficiently ambiguous to allow for the possibility that a Ukrainian interceptor might have gone astray. Of course, there have been some problems with the messaging of the Polish government as regards to what exactly has happened. There's still an investigation. But I think what this episode does reveal is that even a country like Poland, which typically is seen as very hostile towards Russia and very eager to help Ukraine in any capacity, even Poland still assesses those risks and is in regular consultations with its NATO members, precisely because it wants to be in good standing with those NATO members, not the least of which being the United States, should something serious, in fact, happen that is of an unambiguous nature. So I don't want to necessarily dismiss these sorts of concerns that are often tied to the operation of alliance politics. But typically, when we talk about entrapment and abandonment concerns, they're sort of seen as two sides of the same coin, that in trying to address one, you raise the risks of the other problem rearing its head. Really, both sorts of concerns tend to coexist, but states are forward-thinking enough such that they try to implement measures to address them equally, however imperfect those efforts may be. Getting back to that point of why sometimes there might be a certain vagueness in the character of military alliance commitments for that reason, because different members have different interests. How do you evaluate the possibility that we might actually see some kind of direct 
military conflict between NATO and Russia as a result of this war in Ukraine. There is certainly a political conflict that is afoot between Russia and you know, countries that much is certain. You can even describe it as a military conflict if you were to take the view that the provision of military assistance to Ukraine is tantamount to direct involvement in the war. I don't think that is necessarily the case, but some might make that argument. The probability of a direct military confrontation involving the two sides is, I think, low, precisely because the two sides do still talk to each other, albeit in fairly limited ways. Both understand the risks involved. And Russia, for all of its nuclear messaging, tends to be fairly respectful of NATO's own red lines, has not interdicted, for instance, Western provision of military assistance. Perhaps that's not necessarily due to a lack of willingness, but maybe a a lack of ability precisely because of the intelligence and technical apparatus that that would involve. But the two sides seem to be managing escalation risks. Russia has tended towards using language that suggests that its red lines are all over the place. And NATO's behavior has already crossed many of those red lines, including, of course, the provision of heavy military hardware. That might create the potential for a misunderstanding down the road. But given what we have seen so far within this particular conflict, and it is not a conflict for Ukraine, it is truly a war of survival for that particular country, I would still say that the likelihood of a direct confrontation remains fairly minimal. Of course, it's at a much more elevated level than what we had saw in January of this year, but still minimal all the same. Mm -hmm. And do you think that Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, this massive state-to-state war that we're seeing on the European continent for the first time in many years, will this shape the character of military alliances in the 21st century? In some ways, we have already seen that impact. After all, the war has galvanized Sweden and Finland to seek to join the alliance formally. This is an important step. It would allow them to regularly participate in North Atlantic Council proceedings on all issues. It will give them the benefits of having an Article 5 commitment, notwithstanding all the discussion that we had around it earlier. It's easy to exaggerate, however, this effort by Sweden and Finland, precisely because Sweden and Finland are already very well enmeshed in the European security architecture. And so what joining NATO really does is to remove some of the inefficiencies that have emerged over the course of the last eight or so years, whereby they're part of the Baltic region, they're integral to it, but because they're not part of the alliance, they get shut out of some discussions. Further afield, though, I think we are starting to see allies and partners, for that matter, take more seriously the need to reconstitute their defense industrial establishments and to ensure that they have the sustenance necessary to go about intensive military activities at a high operational tempo. Some military alliances could suffer from certain imbalances. For instance, if Germany does not necessarily go about the Zeitenwende that uh, has been promised, while Poland, for instance, continues to boost its military, then that might have some sort of implication for American force posture moving forward. I don't necessarily the United States forming new alliances beyond the accession of Sweden and Finland. With respect to Taiwan, which is often discussed as perhaps bearing some consequence of this war, 
I think we have to bear in mind that there has already been a secular trend with respect to how Washington and Taipei have been realigning and forging ever closer ties. I don't necessarily see them forming a military alliance in treaty form anytime soon, but it could very well happen and it was unthinkable not that long. For its part, and I think this is where things get particularly interesting, I think Russia will have a hard time managing its own security relationships. It is the leader of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and we're already starting to see tensions within that alliance. Kazakhstan, for instance, is tilting more and more towards the east to foster closer relations with China. Uzbekistan and Tajikistan have had borders disputes that escalated earlier this year in September. Belarus is still very firmly anchored in that alliance, but society might be having second thoughts and things could go sideways if society were to make a renewed effort to try to take power away from the Lukashenko dictatorship. But with respect to Russia and China, which is often given as an example of an alliance waiting to happen, I don't think that there will be any sort of new treaty alliance with those two countries. I think uh, Russia's combat credibility is already very problematic as regards to its leadership in Central Asia. Its value as a partner will decline in part because of its attention being so focused on its war against Ukraine. Its military decision-making has been perplexing, and it will not really have the wherewithal to really go about that partnership on an equal footing. China, for its part, will probably see an opportunity to extract what it can from Russia at fairly bargain prices. But that does not necessarily mean a new alliance. It will just mean that Russia will suffer from certain asymmetries in that particular economic relationship. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting comment about Russia and China, which is also a partnership that's being closely watched at the moment. So we touched on a couple of themes from your book, but there is a lot more in the book. And it's also written in a really accessible style. And as I said, just feels incredibly relevant to anyone wanting to understand more about the shape of relations between states and the character of military alliances in the 21st century. So where can listeners go to find out more about your book? Well, thank you so much once again for the very kind remarks. It turns out that my book is temporarily out of stock on Australian Amazon. It is still available on American Amazon. The book is published by Polity Press, and they do certainly sell books on their website. I will just say that it is still available in the Kindle version on Australian Amazon, but also I'll link to all of those places in the show notes. Thanks so much, Alexandra. I've really enjoyed this discussion and it's also helped me to better understand the place of the NATO alliance within the context of the current war in Ukraine. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. It was a delight. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.